So we try to do kind of broad things and my, it kind of shaped my goal of, you know, trying to find things that drive efficiency regardless of breed, essentially. So trying to dive down into very basic molecular, cellular type things that might drive feed efficiency. And even, you know, when I got there, we, we had a lot of conversations about this would have been 2013. So we were kind of really in the boom of the feed efficiency interest at that time coming off the, the historically high feed costs and that kind of thing. Um, so we had a lot of discussions on, you know, if we're studying feed efficiency, what should we be studying? Is it, should we be looking at something like gain to feed or feed to gain those, those ratios or residual feed intake, for instance, which is a popular one, um, or residual average daily gain, which is becoming a little more popular now. And a lot of our approach was like, well, let's step back from that because those are all related to dry matter intake and average daily gain. And in a sense, we don't have a great understanding for what's driving either one of those. We know a little bit more about average daily gain probably than what's driving the massive amount of variation in dry matter intake that we can see within a pen of cattle. Um, so a lot of what I did early on was really focused on dry matter intake and what's driving appetite regulation. And, and we kind of focused on that. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Mycotoxins can threaten cattle performance. DSM offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen, and I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University. And our guest today is Dr. Andrew Foote. His academic achievements include a bachelor's degree in animal science from Tarleton State, and a PhD in ruminant nutrition physiology from the University of Kentucky. He is now an assistant professor at Oklahoma State University, and he's had some different steps along his way that I think we're going to get to hear about um, in our show today. So welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you, Dr. Hanson. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Yeah, and I'm trying to remember, Andrew, where we first met. Would it have been at a uh, feedlot multi-state meeting? Yeah, either there or a Midwest Animal Science meeting, something like that. Uh, yeah, I think we've definitely spent more time at those multi-state meetings, traveling through Canada and different places. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess for listeners who don't know, one of the things that we have in the U.S. is kind of these regional multi-state meetings that the USDA kind of hosts. And so um, Andrew and I would have both been part of or are now part of um, of kind of a feedlot management and nutrition committee that has certain objectives, some of which we're going to talk about today under the auspices of carbon efficiency, for example. Um, and it's a really great opportunity to get, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 plus feedlot researchers in this case into one room. We go to different host sites. Um, so someplace like Iowa State has hosted before. We bring everybody in, get to have everybody share what we call station reports. And so basically what's the latest and greatest that we're doing. Um, some lucky grad students get to come along to that sometimes. And boy, that's a indoctrination. <laughs> yeah, um, into the sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I still remember the first student that I took and um, I couldn't, I couldn't go actually. So she went for me and she came back and she said, all Robbie Pritchard did was tell me that my stats were wrong the entire time. Yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't it? It sounds totally like Robbie. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So Andrew, uh, why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about um, how you got to this point in the beef industry? Sure. Yeah. So I, I grew up in West Texas rural area, um, was involved in agriculture peripherally, um, was 
the area I grew up in was a lot of row crops and, and also some feedlots and the dairies started moving in there in the, the Southern Texas panhandle about the time I was graduating high school. Um, so I, I went to college at Tarleton, um, thinking I wanted to go into the meats industry, was pretty involved in, in meats judging, um, did that at Tarleton and thought I was going to go into carcass sales or something like that. And somewhere along the way, taking a feeds and feeding class and, and some other classes, I got really interested in ruminant nutrition. Um, had the opportunity as an undergrad to jump, jump into some, some research projects and got really interested in research and found a passion for that. Um, so I, I stayed there for a master's degree in ruminant nutrition, um, was focused on, on more dairy nutrition actually at, at the time, um, which was, which was interesting and, and seeing both sides of ruminant nutrition has been good in the long run. Um, so then I did a lot of searching for PhD programs and landed on university of Kentucky, which for a Texan, that's like leaving the, the world to move out of Texas and especially going east of the Mississippi. Uh, but had a great time at Kentucky, learned a lot there, worked on fescue toxicosis, um, in my PhD research. Um, and, got to work with the USDA ARS group there in Lexington, Kentucky, quite a bit as a grad student, which kind of, I think it helped me propel into my very short postdoc and then scientist position with USDA ARS in Clay Center, Nebraska at the Meat Animal Research Center. Um, so after my PhD, I went to Clay Center, Nebraska and Long story short, had a about a three month postdoc before I started in the full time scientist position, um, which the job was essentially nutritional physiology, kind of focused on gut physiology for improving feed efficiency of uh, growing and finishing cattle. Um, so did quite a bit in that area. That would have been um, about the time y'all's feed efficiency grant cap grant, I believe was wrapping up. So I kind of came in at the tail end of that and uh, did a few things with the, the cattle that were in the feedlot, which was nice because the day I showed up, there were cattle in the feedlot ready to go that they had been breeding for two years at that point. And uh, so I was able to hit the ground running there and had a, had a pretty good experience there. Um, was there for about five years and then made the change to come here at Oklahoma State as a assistant professor in a research and teaching position. Um, and I've been here just over five years. So I'm getting ready to go up for tenure now. We have a time and labor saving product for you. Beef and Dairy AgriSlat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy AgriSlat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. Nice, nice. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about kind of uh, the last two, or the, your current position being there at Oklahoma State as an assistant professor. You have teaching and research responsibility. So what's, what's your official appointment? So my official appointment is 70% research, 30% teaching. Um, and when I came in, I was... I was supposed to really focus on graduate education and teaching graduate classes in ruminant nutrition. Um, and then, you know, like normally happens, we've, we've had a big boom in undergrad populations here. Uh, faculty numbers haven't kept up with that. So I've, I've got the opportunity to teach some undergrad classes as well, which has been, it's been interesting. It's been fun most of the time. Um, it's, it's a challenge as somebody that likes to learn it's been it's been fun to kind of hone my craft of teaching i guess um to kind of take complex ideas and break it down for undergrads to understand um and kind of comparing and contrasting undergrad and graduate education has has been fun for me and quite a change from my role at usda i would say 
And I can talk more about that if you'd like. Yeah, I, I think help our listeners understand, at least as a graduate student mentor, I often find that students at least are like, well, there's going to be a job in academia or there's going to be a job in industry. And, you know, oftentimes never the two shall meet. Um, but really kind of in the middle ground is the, you know, the ARS or the USDA. So maybe help our listeners understand a little bit about what that looks like and and tell us more specifically about the Clay Center location, because the Meat Animal Research Center has tremendous resources um, and so I think very cool, like I, obviously they were one of our partners in the feed efficiency grant that you referenced. And there was, there was a reason for that, right? It was lots of breeds of cattle, great facilities, and then a good team of both geneticists and nutritionists to work on that. Yeah. So I, to kind of talk about the meat animal research center, it's, it's a really unique facility that was built on a, a former Naval ammunition depot where during the Korean war, they made, um, bombs essentially and stored them in that area um, so it, it's a massive facility lots of pasture lots of cropland at the time i was there we had about eight thousand cows that we bred each year um, and most of, almost all of those either were retained as heifers to go back into the herd or we finished them through the feedlot there uh, so we had a lot of facilities for we had a, a quite large Intentech feeding facility to do individual intake. And then we also had a couple of really nice Kaling gate barns that we could do other more intensive research on uh, using those facilities. Um, kind of the unique thing there is that it, since that uh, center was established, it's had a heavy genetics component and animal breeding component. And they've developed what they call the germplasm evaluation herd, uh, which is, sort of a mixture of different breeds that should more or less represent the U.S. beef industry kind of demographic. If you think of breeds as a demography, then it would sort of be a snapshot of that. And they use everything's AI to, for the most part. So they're bringing in um, feed bulls that are relevant in the industry and in the different breeds. So you have more or less kind of a an industry relevant beef herd there um that it's a little different because we're not moving we're not receiving stalker cattle or anything into the feedlot and so it's they're all ranch calves essentially so it's a little bit different makes brd research a little more challenging there but for feed efficiency it was great because we had we had consistent genetics we had all the knowledge of that um and we had a, a pretty, pretty homogenous group of animals that, that we could utilize and that type calving windows and stuff, which was really nice for putting together a big group of cattle. Um, so the, the position there, kind of get into your other part of the question, uh, going in as a, a research scientist with ARS, most of the time we'd kind of think about that as being essentially a hundred percent research appointment. Um, in a lot of places, a lot of ARS locations are actually linked to universities. They'll be co-located on a university or very close to it. And those, those scientists there, a lot of times do kind of operate as a, just a research faculty, but they just get paid by the government instead of the, the university. Um, Clay Center was a little bit different because it's, it's really in the middle of nowhere. Um, it, it does have a linkage to the University of Nebraska, but being an hour and a half away, it's a distant linkage, I would say. So there, it was a little bit different, but we did kind of operate as, you know, it was 100% research. We didn't often have graduate students. We did do a summer internship program, so we'd get undergrads in during the summer, get them some experience doing research. Um, and I, I had a technician at the time, and that was essentially all. And we had staff out at the farm that would help do sample collections and obviously feed the animals and do all the husbandry stuff. Um, so it, it was quite different. I thought the transition to the university would be seamless, just going from hundred percent research to 70%. Uh, it has been a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. I was a little optimistic, I would say. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, you know, OSU is great. We have a lot of facilities here. We have great animal facilities and resources. Um, 
labor can be an issue. Um, not having as much of that full-time technical staff that you do with ARS is a bit challenging. Um, having to rely on on grad students and undergrad students is is a bit different. And but that's also a big reason I I wanted to get back into academia was some of that training graduate students, um, you know, and undergrads as well. When a lot of the reason I am where I am is I got involved in undergrad research and I kind of wanted to to be able to provide that for other students that might have that interest as well. And maybe they don't even know they have that interest yet. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I see from kind of the outside looking in is that there's some great resources at places like US Mark and having the full-time technician is super useful because you have that historical knowledge, right? That person knows how to do the assays that you've been doing. They know when to collect the data. They don't do the oopsie that a fresh graduate student might do if they're like, oh, I didn't think about doing that thing that I should have known how to do. But then the flip is that you're not getting to kind of have that multiplier effect the way you are as a faculty member. So you get to train the next generation. I mean, that's one of my favorite things about being a professor is training the next generation of scientists and getting them out into the industry and, you know, propelling our knowledge forward. So so kind of under that, <clears throat> tell us a little bit about how your like feed efficiency research, <clears throat> excuse me, has progressed because you talked about the germplasm stuff. And so like for listeners, they might have purebred limousine cattle and purebred Angus cattle, and they would have very different feed efficiencies. And limies are some of the ones that we've tested at Iowa State too, right? So limies are incredibly feed efficient. They don't take very many pounds of feed for a pound of gain as much as some of the other breeds do, but they don't produce a very high marbled product. So it's a very different, very kind of lean meat kind of produce. So, but you have this great opportunity to have these kind of extremes to test, which is always the best way to start out on something, right? As we look at the tails, see if we can figure out what makes them different, and then we can work into the messy middle. Right. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's, that's a good point on the, the feed efficiency. It gets really hard to um, take very small studies and then expand them to have a broader impact to the whole beef industry. And, you know, some of our our approach there at Clay Center when I was started doing feed efficiency was we wanted to use very large sets of animals and very genetically diverse animals. So we we would try and get um, different groups, and and they weren't their groups weren't quite as heavily Angus influenced as probably the the U.S. herd has become. Um, so we we were able to be a little more diverse and and pull in you know, some limousine, some Charlay, some red Angus and, and do some different things and look at, I tried to look at breed differences. The geneticists there get really picky about doing breed comparisons and stuff. And, and it does get tricky when you go to publish something. And if your data says, for instance, that one breed is less efficient than another, well, that can make a lot of people mad, um, for different reasons. And, and so we, we tried to stay out of that as much as possible since we were, you know, working for the government, working for the everybody at, in a sense. Um, so we tried to do kind of broad things and my, it kind of shaped my goal of, you know, trying to find things that drive efficiency regardless of breed, essentially. So trying to dive down into very basic molecular, cellular type things that might drive feed efficiency. And even, you know, when I got there, we, we had a lot of conversations about this would have been 2013. So we were kind of really in the boom of the feed efficiency interest at that time coming off the, the historically high feed costs and that kind of thing. Um, so we had a lot of discussions on, you know, if we're studying feed efficiency, what should we be studying? Is it, should we be looking at something like gain to feed or feed to gain those those ratios or residual feed intake for instance which is a popular one um, or residual average daily gain which is becoming a little more popular now and a lot of our approach was like well let's step back from that because those are all related to dry matter intake and average daily gain and in a sense we don't have a great understanding for what's driving either one of those we know a little bit more about average daily gain probably than what's driving 
the massive amount of variation of dry matter intake that we can see within a pen of cattle. Um, so a lot of what I did early on was really focused on dry matter intake and what's driving appetite regulation. And, and we kind of focused on that. And our, our approach as nutritionists and physiologists was, hey, let's understand those basic traits of intake and growth. And then we'll let the, the animal breeders kind of come up with an index because your, your selection criteria in Iowa could be pretty different than somebody in New Mexico, for instance, or even Western Oklahoma. Um, they need a different type of animal there to be efficient. And so maybe we don't need to focus as much on residual feed intake or, or the ratios. And, and then a lot of that discussion kind of came into, well, if we're, if we're trying to find these underlying traits, um, what are we going to wind up selecting animals for? And, and that's where I think over the last shoot, even 30 years, probably with a lot of the, the RFI residual feed intake stuff, it's kind of come into, well, if we select animals for this, what's happening to those or what's driving that difference. And so I, I've done a lot of that research, just trying to dive into what makes a efficient animal efficient and measure on a large number of animals, all kinds of things in the blood that we can or different tissues. And, and I, I think we've gotten a lot from that, but I think my, my thoughts have kind of evolved on it, I would say. Um, so I've kind of come to the conclusion that maybe it's time we stop worrying about what we're going to select animals for. I'm not a geneticist. I don't work for geneticists anymore. So what I want to do is find mechanisms that are going to be relevant to the producer. And what the producer is going to look at is, yeah. I was just going to say, so I, I want to dig into that. But before you do, can you help our just listeners maybe define like, so I think in academia, we commonly report things in papers as gain to feed. Producers probably work with their nutritionists and they think about feed to gain. But then you also drop some other terms there like RFI or even residual average daily gain. So maybe some definitions for the audience. Okay. Yeah, good. Um so, yeah, I think you're right. Most producers probably think of feed conversion ratio, which would be what we would call feed to gain. So how much feed does it take for a pound of gain? Um, in the scientific world, we uh, get mad at the mathematics and say, well, if you have feed over gain, there's instances where you're not gaining anything or you may be losing weight. Um, so you can't divide by zero. So we flip it over and talk about gain to feed. And for me, it, it, it's a little more intuitive because higher is better in that case. And what you're essentially saying is how much gain do you get per pound of feed intake? Um, so I like to think of it that way. And it, it's a very good proxy on the economics, I would say, that a producer can look at either one of those ratios and say, okay, well, one is my input cost and one is my output. So it's going to be a, a direct correlation to their economic efficiency of feeding cattle. You know, something like residual feed intake is essentially um, when we regress intake on average daily gain. So we would say these cattle are expected to consume this much feed to gain what they're gaining per day. And... So if they're off of that ex expectation, we'd say if they're below it, if they're eating less than we expect, we'd say those are efficient because they're gaining the same, but they're eating less. And the opposite of that is they're eating more than they should be, but they're not gaining for that. So if they're eating X percent more than, then they're essentially wasting the feed and, and that would be an inefficiency in that system. Um, so it residual feed intake RFI has been pretty popular. It, as I'm having a hard time explaining it, well, you can see that it, it is kind of difficult to explain without a whiteboard behind you, maybe to, to kind of draw it out, um, and explain it that way. I think residual average daily gain, um, a lot of times we just describe it as the opposite of 
RFI, so it would be, you know, they're eating this much, we expect them to gain this much. And if it's above or below that, that would be some efficiency or inefficiency. Um, those have been pretty heavily studied. They were described back in the 60s, 70s um, by geneticists. And they've been studied from there, kind of extrapolating those to life cycle of analysis and that kind of thing to see, well, what's, what's beneficial, what's harmful? Um, are there correlations with mature body size and that kind of thing um, that, that would drive the efficiency of the system as a whole? Um, and in, in general, RFI is kind of one of those that we, we can't find a lot of negatives for it, but it, it's not been super useful, I guess. And I think part of it is the complexity of it, that it, it, it's hard to see the economics of it when you start talking about it. And it's sort of an index. It goes from negative one to one, and it's relevant to that cohort of animals that you measure it in. It doesn't compare across cohorts, which makes research challenging with it. Um, so it, it's been a challenge. And so I think, I think it, it's, there are now EPDs with some of the, the breeds for those things, but I don't think they're, they've been heavily utilized uh, by producers. That's a pretty broad brush to paint with, but in general, they've not been heavily utilized. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of your sentiment there. I think one of the challenges I've always had with RFI, other than not explaining it with a whiteboard, because you're totally right, it requires a graph, um, is uh, that we would have these really extremes. So we'd have these animals that would look really, really good, right? Because a very, very low RFI would, would look really good. And then you would dig down into the data and they were actually sick. And the re that was the reason they weren't eating. And I always thought, oh, I, I don't love that. And that, that again, is a broad brush, right? There's a lot of great things about RFI and moving us towards more feed efficiency. But I come back to the fact that we're such a segmented industry in beef cattle business that, you know, if I'm running a feedlot, the likelihood that I have any control over the genetics of the cattle that come into my feedlot is still pretty darn low, right? Especially if I'm a big feedlot and I'm buying loads and loads of cattle a week just to keep pens refilled. Um, and that's only going to become an increasing problem because, like you said, we're at a period of high prices uh, for both cattle and feed. We're getting lower and low, lower availability of cattle. So those pieces are just going to continue to kind of brush against each other. So let's talk about what you've talked about, where the role that nutrition can play in here. And what are some of the things that you've been studying there at Oklahoma State University that are more on the, okay, so these calves came in. I don't know their genetic background, but these are some of the nutritional or management strategies that you've been testing to look for ways to improve feed efficiency. Sure. So one of the areas we've spent a lot of time here recently and had a, a little bit of success with some grants on it is sort of diving into, it, it sort of started as looking at glucose metabolism and how that might drive either feed intake growth or efficiency. And so we did a couple of studies on that and looked at what we would call, uh, we use a, a glucose tolerance test. So it's, we bring cattle in, uh, put a catheter in the jugular vein, give them a big injection of glucose and take a bunch of blood samples and see um, the insulin response to that and how quickly glucose gets utilized and taken up by the tissues and then how big of an insulin response comes from that. Um, and we did that on a, a decently large group of cattle um, and then measured their feed efficiency after that in the feedlot using an Intentech system. And, and we saw some pretty interesting things when, when we broke it out, we didn't see a lot of correlation of any, uh, any of those parameters from a glucose tolerance test. They didn't really correlate with feed intake. Um, we had a few more correlations with average daily gain, but the interesting ones that kind of stuck out to us was there were quite a few interesting correlations with gain to feed. So our, our, for this instance, our ideal feed efficiency proxy probably. Um, 
And so we saw some of these parameters that sort of started to indicate cattle that had a an ideal feed efficiency or a higher gain to feed tended to be a little more insulin resistant. And um, so that, that kind of shocked us a little bit just when when you hear the words insulin resistance, you don't often think of anything good, I would say. So, okay. So I think this is super interesting because I totally agree. Like what you just said definitely flies in the face of what we would think. We would have hypothesized that cattle who are more resistant to insulin are unable to get the signal to the muscle to say, pick up glucose, clear that blood sugar. Well, I feel like I'm teaching 419 again. Um, we literally talked about this in a review session yesterday. Um, so maybe help our listeners understand a little bit about why, why are you even looking at things like insulin resistance in finishing cattle, right? Because this maybe is not an intuitive thing that you would necessarily think we'd be studying. Right. So, you know, it sort of started the, you know, Glucose is an essential nutrient for almost all tissues in the, in any animal really. Um, and, you know, getting proper growth of muscle cells, adipocytes, anything requires glucose to come in there to provide the intermediate metabolites and the energy and that kind of thing. And a lot of that is driven by insulin signaling to those tissues that, Hey, there's glucose available. You need to take it up and utilize it while you can. Um, there's been historically a fair bit of research on that, um, dating back to even Joan Eisman's work in the nineties. She did a lot of insulin sensitivity stuff, um, up until pretty recently. And then there's been a few more recent ones. Um, but I would say it's in beef cattle, it's pretty spotty, any literature on it. But, um, I think, you know, the, off the cuff hypothesis would have been exactly what you said that a more responsive tissue to glucose or to insulin is probably going to be better. They'll be able to take up the nutrients better and grow from that. Um, so these data were a little bit of a head scratcher, I would say to, to kind of think of, well, that's exact opposite of what we might would expect. Um, but the, the more we kind of, sit around and think about it and dive into it. Um, we, we still can't really explain why it might be good. We're doing some kind of proteomics approaches to look at the tissues of what might be going on in, in the muscle and the liver, uh, to see what's, what's driving this. Um, there's a little bit of data in dairy cattle actually that, that shows at certain times in lactation, certain tissues can become insulin resistant. And in, in their case, the, the adipose tissue becomes insulin resistant, which allows more energy to go to milk. So they become more efficient in that way. It's a little challenging to translate that to feedlot steers probably, but it, it kind of led us to the thought of maybe we're seeing something similar that uh, maybe certain tissues are insulin resistant which allows kind of the hypothesis would be maybe an adipose, adipose tissue is insulin resistant, which allows the muscles to have more access to nutrients um, to grow better, leading to that efficiency. Are you So if your proteomics that you mentioned, are you looking at that in like the different tissues? So muscle versus adipose, maybe even like visceral depots of adipose versus subcutaneous or other things? Yeah, we we haven't been able to get into that just yet. That's kind of the next proposal probably is to get a little more into that. Um, you know, we, we collected all those tissues before we knew this phenomenon or had this, this kind of indication. So um, we did muscle biopsies and liver biopsies. And for some reason, never really thought that, hey, adipose tissue would be the way to go. Um, and, you know, measuring all of these before that feed efficiency trial, um, which I think is important, um, that timing of it is probably important. It gets a little harder to, to piece out those different adipose depots, which I think you're on, you're right that it could be very different if we're talking about, um, kind of that visceral fat that in at least the human literature we would say is very problematic uh, for 
things like insulin resistance and inflammation and that sort of thing versus the subcutaneous or intramuscular, perhaps. And then one of the things I've struggled with as we've also been doing some thinking about insulin resistance is do we, I feel like in the human literature, we at least kind of have an idea of what is a bad insulin tolerance result or a bad glucose tolerance result. Do we, do you feel like we know that for feedlot cattle? Do we know what's biologically good versus bad or is it a sliding scale? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't think we have enough data to say either way. You know, you look at the, the human literature, they have very specific numbers that they can translate to the clinic and say, you know, for instance, um, like when my wife was pregnant, you'd go in and uh, they would do a essentially a glucose tolerance, oral glucose tolerance test. And the way they would do it is they would just take one blood sample and they knew at that certain time point in that test, if it's over X milligrams per deciliter, then you got a problem. If it's below, you're fine. And we're nowhere near that in, in beef cattle. Dairy cattle may be a little bit better, a little bit more data. Um, when we've compared some of our data to some of the literature data, it, we do get pretty similar um, numbers for the glucose tolerance test. So it does kind of indicate maybe maybe eventually we could do kind of a meta-analysis and come up with you know, what it is in a young calf versus a, a almost finished calf and how that changes. Um, there's just not been a ton of that published out there, I would say, to, to have an idea of even what, what would we consider resistant versus not resistant. And I don't, I don't think we have a good clinical definition of that just yet. Yeah. So two thoughts there. One is, um, We've also done a little bit of looking at insulin resistance using kind of the R quick I calculations. So measuring um, before feeding glucose, uh, non-esterified fatty acids and insulin, um, and then doing kind of a logarithmic equation with those and the higher the number, the more sensitive they are. And one of the things that maybe gives me a little more confidence in that kind of metric is that we see effects of giving an anabolic implant. So if we did not implant animals in the finishing period, we see that that insulin resistance index basically goes in a negative direction. They become more insulin resistant throughout the feeding period. And if we implant them, we kind of prevent that decline from happening until later in the feeding period, which would make a lot of sense that we're improving the insulin sensitivity of those animals by giving them an anabolic implant. And I think the other thing that goes with that is that all things related to glucose are extra tricky in a ruminant, a mature ruminant, who has a long time of feed being held in the GI tract. So feed might stay in the rumen for 30 plus hours. And then we have a liver who's in a constant state of gluconeogenesis. So the whole way that the ruminant is able to function off of using VFAs like propionate, which we get from corn fermentation in the rumen, that liver is constantly making glucose for all those tissues that you just told us needed glucose. So it's extra tricky. It is. Um, yeah, the the ruminant is very different than any non-ruminant just in the way it, it produces glucose and its need. And even, you know, they kind of are made to run on low glucose concentrations compared to pigs or humans. Um, so, yeah, it, it's definitely complicated. I think some of the things that we'll find that cause the resistance are probably quite different in, in ruminants. Um, and one of the things we've been working on is, is as you mentioned, propionate is we've, we've done a fair bit of work on that. And we've seen that in young calves, just increasing the ruminal propionate can actually induce an insulin resistance um, that may or may not be beneficial. That's, to be determined, but it, it was a, a pretty rapid response, even within just 14 to 28 days on the increased propionate, we saw an insulin resistance start to occur. Interestingly, on older cattle that had been on feed longer and were um, bigger, we didn't see that effect of propionate. And it, it didn't induce an insulin resistance, but when we compared those two studies, those cattle were already insulin resistant. So compared to the young calves, so it, 
kind of indicated maybe maybe they already are and they're just not becoming any more resistant at that point. Yeah, well, that'd be interesting, too, thinking about some of the um, OBA and Allen and other data, right? Thinking about um, propionate infusion into the rumen and things like that, and how that will have a negative effect on feed intake for obvious reasons, because it's a signal that feed must have been consumed already. We can slow down on intake. So I've always thought feed intake regulators, this kind of circling back full circle to your physiology days, but I've always thought feed intake regulators are super interesting. Yeah, and that's sort of where we started on it. Um you know, I've always been a fan of that hepatic oxidation work that Mike Allen did with OBA and some of the others. And, um, you know, a lot of what they described was in dairy cows that are eating a, a higher roughage diet. And that kind of led me to the thought of, well, if we're already pushing propionate production with the finishing diets, well, what happens if we put more in there? Do we still see a reduction in intake and, and any of these changes in glucose metabolism? And it, it did work. It did cause a pretty rapid drop in intake, um, which was interesting. And, and a lot of what Alan had done was very short-term regulation of feed intake. So just the shorter one, two, three-day infusions um, where we were doing more of a long-term approach on it. Um, and it, it's it's been interesting to look at the the similarities and differences between those. Yeah, I think the, well, also thinking another thought, um, dairy cows not only have higher roughage diets than our finishing cattle, but they eat a lot, right? So quantitatively, they might actually be pre-producing just as much or even more propionate as our finishing animals might. So I think that'd be interesting to think about from your little, your younger calf versus your older calf is quantitatively how much they're doing and then what's your like delta there what's your change as you started to increase it yeah and that's that's also where we kind of got to with with if we start thinking about propionate supply to the animal and not just proportion in the rumen um, and that's one thing we haven't done a great job of is trying to quantify you know the, the total propionate supply to the animal you know measuring Propionate production is challenging. Not a lot of people do that. There's some literature data on it, but we look at concentrations and proportions and kind of go from there. But we don't often look at, well, how much is the pool size in the rumen? How much is that liquid mass there? Does that differ? And then when you get into our model, when you drop feed intake, well, there's less feed there to to ferment, so you're probably getting less propionate from that fermentation, even though you're dumping in extra uh, from your treatment, it's going down from, potentially going down from them eating less. So maybe we're not increasing what's getting to the animal, but there may be some other signal or, or some aspect like that that we don't even know yet. So it sounds like your team, your graduate students or postdocs or whatever you have, have lots of future research questions to address. Yeah, we, there's a lot of questions there. Um, the challenge is narrowing it down to something that we can do now and meaningful and not try to answer everything at one time. Uh, I was just going to say, so we're recording this in September of 2023. So how many graduate students or you mentioned a postdoc earlier? I'm not sure what your team looks like right now. Yeah, so right now I have a master's student and a PhD student. Um, desperately trying to recruit students. Um, it's always a challenge, I would think. Uh, at least for, for us here, we're having a hard time finding good students that want to come do PhDs. Um, apparently the job market's pretty good, so they can go get a job instead of staying in school. But yeah, so typically I'll have um, three to four graduate students and three to four undergrad students working in the lab. Uh, postdoc was um, kind of a one-off thing, but it, it's always a, a possibility. I think I, I enjoy having postdocs. They're pretty productive and they can bring a lot to the graduate education and some of that mentoring that we do. Um, throwing a postdoc into the mix is, is really good for the grad students, I think, as well as getting the postdoc experience and mentoring before they move into a faculty position or something like that. So. 
Yeah, I agree. Although if you think PhD students are hard to find, postdocs are pretty much impossible to find with any relevant experience. Um, but we, in the at least in the feedlot nutrition industry, we are an industry populated where everybody's got a PhD. So there's a lot of incentive to get a PhD because if you want to get a job, you likely need that depending what you want to do. Um, but that means they all get a job with their PhD, so they don't need to stay for a postdoc. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I try and encourage the PhD students to do postdocs just because I think they're, you get a lot from it. Um, sort of hypocritical on my part since I only had about a three month postdoc, but wasn't really enough time to glean much from that. I only had nine months, but I felt I did studies and I learned about grant writing and, you know, I did a lot of the objectives that I had with, with having a postdoc. So I think that can be super valuable. Animal health is constantly threatened by the exposure of mycotoxins in feed. The monitoring of fungal toxins has become indispensable in the feed industry and in animal production. DSM offers a range of analytical services to assess the mycotoxin contamination and solutions to combat mycotoxins. Learn more at dsm.com forward slash mycotoxin dash survey. Okay, we have reached that time in our interview. Andrew, are you ready for our three famous questions? Sure. Okay. Question number one, what is your favorite beef resource? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the last few years as, as I've been here, I've spent a lot of time looking at the New Mexico State Texas Tech Feedlot Consultant uh, Survey that Kendall Samuelson published. It's getting a little dated at this point. Hopefully they'll they'll redo that at some point. Um, I use that a lot just to kind of see what, what their population is doing. Uh, I think it has some interesting data in it. Um, I don't know if it's as relevant in 2023 as it was when, when she published it, but it, it's a, it's a pretty interesting resource for me just to see what, what's going on out there. Um, uh, another one I'd mention is we have kind of a, a stakeholder group here that we've sort of developed a almost a listserv of emails that we ping ideas off or something. So it's a lot of feedlot nutritionists and industry guys and ladies that we can kind of pull them to get, get a feel for different things and, and reach out for support and that kind of stuff. So that right now is probably my favorite just because it's a, a person or a, a group of people rather than a, a book to go look at. Yeah, nice. The um, Samuelson 2016 survey is what you're referencing there from Journal of Animal Science. And then um, I agree, I'd love to see them do an updated version of that and have maybe a little bit more Upper Plains representation in there. I was looking at some data this week and I was like, man, nobody feeds corn silage in any of these responses. So I know where this is not coming from. Right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Okay. Question number two. Uh, what is something not related to beef that you are reading or consuming right now? Yeah, so I read quite a bit. Um, I try to read some nonfiction and some fiction. So right now I'm reading some Ernest Hemingway. Just He's one of my favorite fiction writers. So um, reading some of his short stories right now. Um, nonfiction. Just finished up rereading a book called The Comfort Crisis, which... I think it's a really cool book. Um, it's kind of about, you know, how modern comforts are not great for humans as we weren't evolved to have things like comfy office chairs that we sit in for eight, 10 hours a day or, or air conditioning and those kind of things. So it's, it's a really interesting book. He does some comparing and contrasting with hunter gatherer groups and, and stuff and our modern lifestyles, at least in the United States and, so it's a pretty interesting book, I think. And so I'm usually reading three or four books at a time. So Yeah, interesting. Sounds like the comfort crisis could lead right into your insulin resistance work. <laughs> was, right? Yeah, there was a little playthrough with that, I would say. But. Yeah, nice. <laughs> okay, third and final question. Is there a trait of someone you know that you think has helped them be successful? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I... I, in my career, I've kind of sought out some different mentors and see people that are quote unquote killing it out there and, and try and see what they're doing uh, 
that's helped them with that. And some, some that just kind of blow my mind are people that are just so productive. My PhD advisor, Dr. Harmon, Dave Harmon, he was kind of that way where he could just, he could get more done in an hour than most of us can get done in a day. And it just always kind of blew my mind. And I think there's some others out there in our field that, that have those same kind of tendencies that it just blows my mind how productive they are. And, um, their ability to focus probably is something leaves me envious. Nice. Maybe another thing that leads back to the creature comforts, right? Focus is uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> something yeah, that's a little sure. different. <laughs> yeah. Putting the smartphone down and surprisingly hard, even just like the mirror effect, right? You're sitting in a meeting and you're being good. You've got your phone turned upside down and it's on silent and you see somebody else like sur- surreptitiously like check theirs and you're like, oh, I need to check mine now. And they're like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So the first time I read that book, it did kind of make me think a little bit more about how I use technology and, you know, I've turned most of the notifications off on my phone and uh, kind of flirting with the idea of going back to a dumb phone, but my, I, I can't remember my calendar, so I have to have something. And that's, that's the, probably the one thing that's keeping me with the smartphone. It's, Isn't that true? We're so overscheduled. Yeah. <laughs> I like to use the like work focus or I have different focus actually set up. So depending what I want to do, and then I have like certain things where I'm like, if this person tries to call me, it'll break through that focus thing or whatever, especially if it's like a second time. But for the most part, just turning those on for a while and being like, it's very unlikely the world is going to burn down without me in the next hour or two, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's good. Even, you know, just the, the kind of work we do, it's like it's, if you don't check your email this morning, it's fine. Nothing's going to burn up. Um, you know, you should probably focus on writing that paper or something for a couple hours and not trying to respond immediately to every email. Absolutely. And now you've reminded me I have a paper I should be working on today. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be shocked if it's just one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You're probably right, but there's one that's imminently due. (laughs) Gotcha. Well, Andrew, this has been really fun chatting with you today. Thanks so much for coming on the Beef Podcast Show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Always good to talk to you.